everybody. This is Reverend Joya Abrams. I'm the associate pastor in this greater Decatur thing that we're doing. Welcome to our Linton podcast. I'm here with Dalton and Patrick. Say hi. Hello. Hey. And we are here to talk today again about you only have to die. Um, so this sermon this week is on John chapter 2 verses 13 through 22. And we're going to jump right in with Patrick reading the scripture. Sure, this is John chapter 2, 13 to 22. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So this text is the first from our series this Lent that's taken from the Gospel according to John. This is the first text from John that we've preached this Lent. And of the four Gospels, this one was written last. And if you were to read through all four, you would realize that it sounds so different from the other three. Mm -hmm. What I want to do right now, if you remember our preview podcast, I said that I was super interested in helping everybody learn how to exegete, how to read out, how to study and understand what's in the scripture, how to notice its nuances. So what I want to say first is that this story, this cleansing of the temple happens in all four Gospels. But in Matthew, Mark, Luke, it happens really toward the crucifixion. But here in John, this happens as the second thing that Jesus does. Right before this episode, he has changed water into wine in Cana. But now here we are in the temple and he's turning over tables. This is the first act that Jesus does in this gospel that is his own initiation. Everything else, I mean, before this, he called the disciples. That really wasn't a a display of his power. Um, And so then he goes to the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and his mother asks him to change the water into wine. But this thing, this turning over the tables and turning out the money, money changers, that's happening because he wanted to. So what I want to ask y'all is when you're um, exegeting your, your text, Dalton and Patrick, how does things like this, these nuances and placement of a story, especially something that's in all four of the Gospels, how does that influence how you prepare as a preacher? And, and does this placement even matter as you're preparing your sermons? Sure. What I'd say is that the question for me is, what is the writer of this particular Gospel trying to say by placing the story in this place. I mean, in some circles, it'd be heretical to to note that the four Gospels are told in ways that aren't completely compatible with one another in terms of time. Um, 
I, I hope that this is not one of those circles because the truth of the matter is there's some incompatibility here. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's the gospel writer taking some license to try to use the facts of Jesus' life to tell a specific story about who Jesus was. And for me, in this instance, it's John trying to describe the radical nature of Jesus' ministry so that the first thing he does is change the water into wine. I like to uh, talk about party <laughs> Jesus. I think that's great. Um, but then the, se- the next thing he does is he like turns the tables over, right. which sets the tone for the whole rest of the gospel. What's going to happen is going to be revolutionary. Exactly. What about you, Patrick? Yeah, I mean, ditto. Uh, I don't really have much to add there aside from um, just the way that we read scripture in general is so rooted in who we are. And I think a lot in, in even my own history in Christianity, like I've wanted to read things just as they are. And I've gotten frustrated when I've tried to put gospels alongside one another and seen that they don't fit. You know, even the time frame around Passover doesn't really make sense right. for the cleansing of the temple with in the synoptic gospel. So what does that mean? And um, it can be really easy to go down this rabbit hole that can lead you to a place where you no longer trust scripture yeah. Yeah. at all because right. it's all just lies mm-hmm. unless you can um, see those stories as tied to a particular community with a particular kind of message that they're trying to proclaim to a particular people who's experiencing a particular kind mm. of persecution, right? Right. Yeah, it's a lot of so, particularity. I know, it's a right, lot. yeah. Uh, so, you know, like, um, Mark is abrupt about the kingdom of God because it's, it's written early and these people are being um, killed regularly right. by uh, uh, an occupying government. Then you see John, that's so much later, and you have this beautiful... Um, you can see how philosophy has changed in yeah. like a hundred years. Right. Yeah. Uh, with, um, you've got this light and darkness thing. You've got this balance and imbalance. And it just right. sort of, when you put the beautiful part of a party mm-hmm. next to Jesus throwing everything out of right. what was probably a pretty partying atmosphere yeah right you know money exchanging back and forth animals all over the place yeah you know ritual wine you know like there's all those things and when he walks into that party he throws it apart right there's something about that tension between those two things that can be really beautiful exactly and there are two things that you said patrick i want to make sure that we clarify for the listeners you mentioned synoptic gospels oh yeah thanks um and so (laughs) the synoptic gospels are matthew mark and luke and john is its own special beast yes yeah Dalton said that, not me. <laughs> um, and there's also something that you were saying about persecution um, and wanted to be clear about something that uh, a way that John talks about the people in this gospel that I want to be sure that we talk about mm-hmm. is um, he says that it's, this is the Passover of the Jews. And the gospel of John has been used sometimes to support anti-Semitism. And I wanted to make sure to pause for a moment for us to remember all these people are Jews in this gospel. Right. Even the people who were following Jesus at this point in Christian history, they were still Jews. Even Jesus. Exactly. <laughs> Jesus was always Jewish. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I just want to make sure we remember that. So now I want to turn to the content of this particular text. So I think it would not be an understatement to say that Jesus was super angry. Hmm. Um, and I want to point out he planned his actions. The text says that he fashioned a rope of cord. Oh. He made a, a, a whip. 
He made it himself. That was not a quick thing to do. So he planned out what he was going to do. What was he angry about? Now it was Passover, so people had to travel to the temple from far away to offer their sacrifices as God commanded. And they traveled, so they weren't going to bring their sacrificial animals with them, and they were from different places. So of course they had to change their money out because that made sense because they were from different places. So these things make sense being where they were. But I'm curious, what do y'all think that Jesus was actually angry about? He, he hints at what it is, but how do you all interpret that? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think you are right on the edge of it already. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, um, uh, these, these people who have been traveling for a long time couldn't bring provision with them. So they'd be coming from farming communities, places like Nazareth, where there's really not a lot of wealth and prosperity into the large city that was a um, the, the center point of the Jewish faith, uh, and it continues to be today. Um, but when they got there, in order to make these sacrifices around the Passover, where you remember how the Spirit passed over the people of Israel when they were slaves in Egypt, and um, making your own sacrifice in order to... Um, continue to stay in God's blessing. There were people within Jerusalem who were taking advantage of people's faith in a way that they were, you know, overcharging people for those animals, Mm -hmm. um, manipulating facts and figures, you know, they were changing money. So I don't know what the exchange rate was in Jerusalem for uh, Gentile-y money. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, That'd be some fee to convert. I don't know what that all looked like, but there's something about taking advantage of people that's never good to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I'd add, I, I think there's there's a, there is definitely uh, an, uh, a tone of, of underhandedness in the way mm-hmm. that the people are taking advantage of that that is something Jesus reacts to throughout his whole ministry. In fact, in terms of the way that his social ministry plays out, like it's his primary concern. Right. Um, I, I suspect that there's a there's a tone issue with how the temple is being portrayed mm-hmm. money is a necessary part of life and in the ritual sacrifice culture like you had to be able to exchange money it's part of it and yet if it becomes the focus mm-hmm. then it radically shifts what the temple is supposed to be right and though it may just be a tone issue, it's a really important one because if the temple just becomes about financial gain, it ceases to be a temple. I don't want to get too far ahead, but we got some of those temples around nowadays. Yeah. (laughs) And that's actually where I wanted to go um, is to talk a little bit about how is this temple, not so much as this place where we encounter God, but this place where we, encounter opportunity to gain Mm -hmm. not spiritual wealth but worldly wealth Um, so I have a a couple of questions about that how do you all see this uh, this reality in the church maybe ours I don't know maybe we've only been there seven months (laughs) Um, of the church being a place uh, that's not only about worship I think Jesus might have been upset that the temple was not only a place of worship that he was that it was dividing its focus so is our church today dividing its focus 
Go ahead and just lay that out there. I mean, this is a continual issue for the Christian church. It has been mm-hmm. for 2,000 years, and it will continue to be. Because just like Patrick was speaking of earlier about Scripture, like you could take every word literally, or you could say these things don't match up, and so I'm not going to believe any of it. The truth of the matter is there's a middle ground. Mm-hmm. And what, what, I, what I hope the church avoids is in the interest of putting worship first, which is good, I hope that the church would avoid over-spiritualizing what it is supposed to be. Hmm. And what I mean by that is that sometimes we forget that our faith is grounded in the real world and lived in the real world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there are real world consequences to what it is that we believe. And so if we're going to be faithful, we've got to do things like talk about money Right. Which is in some ways a dirty issue, right? It's in some ways what Jesus was reacting to, and yet we can't ignore it. Exactly. Uh, one of the commentaries looked at said that turning to God and responding is worship. And so related to what you were just saying about we, have, we, are grant, we, we exercise our faith in the world, that that's where our response happens, and that our response is worship. That it's, it's not so much that we respond by saying our, the profession of faith, yes, that's worship, or that we come to the table, yes, that's worship, but also what are we choosing to spend our money on? That also is a form of worship because we're turning to God and that our response is in how do we now make choices out in our regular lives. Right. We have a religion of the heart as Methodists that we understand that God is at work in us to transform us such that we can be in community differently. So, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that uh, it's we're we're our response matters. Patrick, I wonder. Well, yeah. I just want to. I, I I think that's uh, beautiful. In fact, I think that part of what Jesus is confronting here, as much as it's about the folks who are selling stuff, and um, it's also about the people who are buying them. You know, right. mm-hmm. if you're Good just point. walking into the temple to pay your dues and then go off and continue to not follow all the commandments yeah. that have been given or follow all of the rules that were they were still under you know they they continue to be under the rule of like if you just show up confess and then go on keep on keeping on mm-hmm. is that real repentance is that really living within right um our call as disciples whether whether jews or christians in the 21st century and if you're walking to the temple just to prove that you've been there you turn in your tithe because you know that proves your faithfulness yeah. and then yeah. go walk out the door and continue to hire people unjustly or um, speak out uh, in ways that continue to subjugate others or hold systems that are unhealthy together just because it makes you comfortable. There's some, there's a tension there that's right. just on the opposite side of what the money changers themselves are doing. Exactly. So there's yeah. this kind of transactional way of being religious mm-hmm. that I think Jesus is quite strongly speaking against. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a piece, something you just said sparked another question about um, when I talk to people sometimes they will say, you know, I just didn't get fed in church. Mm-hmm. Um, that they're looking for church to deposit something in them. And something in what you just said made me think about this more. Um, what is this nuance between 
people who are, were seeking to be fed in worship versus encountering God in worship? Mm. Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, <laughs> and the time, I mean, I don't know about the two of you, but the time when I most hear from people about being fed is when the, they're coming to tell me that they're not being fed and so they're leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, and my response is always like, look, I hope you find home here, but mostly I just want you to find home. And if it's not here, then I hope it's at, a, at another church. What keeps me up at night isn't people changing uh, their church membership or leaving the church. It's What keeps me up is when people leave and then don't find somewhere else. Right. There is an element, I think, of, of recharge that I'm okay with, that I think mm-hmm. is helpful. I, I find when I, um, if I'm like, traveling and not in worship for a week like i can feel it right come the next monday or tuesday i can really feel that and and yet sometimes the focus on being fed misses out on the fact and i'm i I hope this makes sense y'all help me tease this out if not the focus on being fed sometimes distracts us from the fact that it is in the feeding that we are fed it is in our participation in the work of God, our active participation. Right. At whatever level we're able to do it and at whatever station we are, that's what feeds us. It's, uh, what is it, the, is it St. Francis's prayer that talks about, it, it is, it's in the, the, um, the consoling that, that we, we are, are consoled. consoled. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I found that to be true. Right. I 100% agree with everything that you just said um that's so for me when people say that they aren't being fed that's actually a brian mclaren said in um uh the one of the a workshop that he was doing or something that was like if you come to church probably one out of every 20 sermons i give might impact something to do with your life yeah um but you have to come to all of those to hear that one uh, and the fact that worship continues even when it doesn't feel like it's necessarily feeding you is important. There's something about building that habit that becomes important. Right. There's something about building those relationships that's important. There's something about being let down by your pastor or your friend in church who, um, but then still being able to come back and see them the next Sunday and reconcile like that is feeding over time. Those sort of boring mundane things that (laughs) seem absolutely meaningless create real relationship create sanctuary between people and create spaces for encountering god amen right exactly life isn't lived just on the mountaintop yeah. hopping from mountaintop to mountaintop or in the exactly. valley right. yeah for that matter it's in those mundane details mm-hmm. the the pastor nadia bols weber talks about um when she has people join her church she gives them the same speech and i've taken to doing this too and she says that i can promise you two things will happen to you if you join this church Mm -hmm. the first is that you will be disappointed Mm -hmm. you will be disappointed both with the church and with me as the pastor Mm -hmm. what's more she says the second promise is that if you take that as an opportunity to leave and that is well within your right that I can promise you if you leave then you will miss out on the remarkable grace of a life lived together over time. Yes. And so the, the thing about being fed is that it does require our active participation, but it also is, is not 
a sort of deluge thing. It's a drip, drip, drip mm-hmm. thing. And that's much more sustaining. Yes. I think. And also boring. And yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Like, no, yeah. Hey, yeah. So church is kind of okay. And, <laughs> you know, I want, I think you should be there. I think you'll kind of like the kind of okayness. But yeah. It really is. Right. Yeah. That's what, what it is. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's life together. And, it's life together. And yeah. life together actually, hopefully, isn't always fireworks. Yeah. Because that's exhausting. God, if that's <laughs> what a relationship's supposed to be, man. <laughs> right. No. Don't get married. (laughs) (laughs) The best part about my marriage is Sunday afternoon going home and not talking. That's right. Amen. Praise the Lord. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That sitting in silence together. Yes. Amazing. No, we're having psych reruns on or something. Yeah. Fantastic. Folding laundry. (laughs) Oh, that sounds like too much. Spoken like a man. All right. I fold most of the laundry right. in our house. I will have you know. I right. only fold when he's there. Right. <laughs> now we're going to transition to the questions that we invite you to consider in your quiet time or with your Sunday school class or wherever you happen to be. First, when has the church let you down? And how did you hold on to faith? Second, when have you experienced the remarkable grace of a life lived together over time? And last, how do we cultivate the ability to experience God, even in the mundane? Thank you for listening to the podcast today. We enjoyed recording it. I hope that you enjoyed listening. If you'd like to grab these questions, see them printed out, you can check them out on the website, greaterdecatur.org. We hope you'll join us again next week for the next episode of the You Only Have to Die Lytton podcast. And that sermon will be about the death of control. God be with you. Take care. Bye. Bye.